Um, we are in the midst of week three of a five-week series on prayer called Prayer. And uh, last week was our second week. We were talking about understanding prayer, what it is, how we do it, all that good stuff. Um, and so just uh, kind of just to recap, just as my relationship with my wife is built on, on intimacy and communication, and just as my relationship with my kids is built on intimacy and communication, how do you think our relationship with God, what, what should that be built on? Church, help me out. Yeah, intimacy and communication. Absolutely. So I, I say all of that to ask the question, like, how do we understand prayer? Well, prayer is nothing more. Well, it's a lot more, but it, it's a, a relationship with a God that is built on intimacy and communication. And so this morning, we're going to be shifting to the topic of learning prayer. How do we do it? What should we say? Does God even have a standard or care what my prayer life looks like? If I ask that question, what would you guys say? Go like this. Yeah, absolutely. God cares what our prayer life looks like. And so learning prayer is the difference between the intellectual and the experiential. In other words, what I hope we, we come out of here grasping a little bit more this morning as we leave and go and enjoy some potluck is how to experience communication and intimacy with God. Not simply what it is, but how to actually do it in a way that transforms that relationship from, from familiarity to intimacy. It's, a, it's one thing to know about prayer. It's another thing to experience it and actually live it out. That's what I'm talking about this morning. Let's go to God with a word of prayer, church. Lord, you are our Father, and we want to praise your holy name this morning. We want to glorify you in this place. And Lord, as we, we prepare to get into your word and talk about prayer, Father, I pray that you would bless this time. I pray, Lord, that, that we would honor you with everything that is taught with, as we go into your holy scriptures and we just talk about who you are and what you want from us. Lord, we, we want to be in relationship with you. We want to have communion with you and be in community with you in the way that you designed us to be. And we recognize that through our own sinfulness and through our own brokenness, Lord, a lot of us have severed that. All of us have severed that, Father. But you have been at work from the beginning of the world to restore and to heal and to mend that relationship, Father. And I pray that you do that today. Help us to be a people who seek you in prayer, who love you just a little bit more, a little closer to loving you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, Father. Be merciful to us, forgive us for our sins, and bless our time in your holy word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. So one of the things you may not realize about me, or maybe you do, is if you've been listening to me preach for a while, is I actually like to preach simple messages. Um, it may not seem like that when I go 40, 45 minutes into a message, but I actually like to preach simple messages because you know, I've, I've been influenced by a few people. Uh, one of those is a guy by the name of Andy Stanley. If you've ever turned on the TV and see, seen Charles Stanley on TV, you may be familiar with, with uh, Andy's dad, Charles. Well, Andy's his son. And one of the things that, that Andy said in one of his books that, that really resonated with me was he, he would much rather people come to a church, come to his service, and hear him speak and be able to walk out of there with kind of like one big thing that's memorable, that you retain, that you carry with you, not just for that, for that hour, but for that day, for that week, uh, and maybe even for the rest of your life. He said, I, I would much rather you, you walk out of my church service having learned that one big thing that will change you and influence you, rather than walk out of there going, man, I was really impressed by that, that sermon, that, that guy really seemed to know a lot of what he was talking about. Of course, if you ask me 15 minutes from now what it was actually about, I won't be able to tell you. 
But I walked out of there impressed, and that was a general impression. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, like, man, what was that sermon about 15 minutes later? Have you ever had that experience? I about yeah, I was going to say, same with me. <laughs> there, there are those times where you're like, what did I preach on Sunday? I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. So I actually like to preach simple messages. I want our, our messages here at Lake Merced to be the kinds of messages that we can remember, that are, that are easy to consume. And yet... As we talk about prayer, I am struck by the, by the tension there because prayer is, is full of simplicity and complexity. And maybe complexity is not the right word, but, but richness and depth. I, I'm not sure I understand how to do this. On one hand, if someone asked me what prayer was, I could say, well, you know, prayer is just talking with God. And would I be right in saying that? Absolutely. But that, that's like the simple version, right? And yet on the other hand, isn't prayer so much more? And if it's so much more, am I doing it justice to, to simplify prayer into such a basic idea? Because prayer is not just talking to God, as we mentioned just a moment ago. Prayer is characterized by communication and by intimacy with, with a, a real person of God, which means it's prayer between a child and their father. It, it, it's prayer to a Lord or to a king or to a master, all of those things are summed up in prayer. And so prayer is as simple as, as talking to God and as complex as we want it to be, as we want to dig into understanding. And so that the challenge for me this week and in this series and in this message is to try to strike a balance between the simple and the deep, the simple and the complex, whatever word you want to use, the simple and the rich. And it reminds me a lot of gravity. I, I use gravity for a lot of analogies and illustrations because it's something that we feel and experience every day, right? We, we don't necessarily, we can't see it, it's not tangible, and yet the fact that we're sitting in our chairs or standing on the ground proves that it's there. We, we recognize that the gravity is, is part of our world. Well, gravity is pretty simple, right? We, we learn from an early age, what goes up, help me out, must come down, right? From the time we're in diapers, we stand up, and we fall down, and we, we hit our butts on the floor, and we go, ah, oh, that's, that's gravity. We take our ball, we throw it in the air, we expect what to happen. It comes down, right? There's a reason we don't let go of balloons. They seem to, like, they seem to not really follow that rule as well. So kids let go of balloon, they don't wait for it to come back down, they start crying. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists, tells a story about you know, his son when he was little, uh, letting go of a balloon by mistake, and said, I know, Dad. The next time you're traveling, when you're in one of those airplanes, you could just go up there and get it for me and bring it back. It doesn't quite work that way. But, but gravity is one of those things that, that is very simple. What goes up must come down. And yet, as I found when I got into college and started studying physics and things like that, it doesn't have to be that simple, does it? Because now all of a sudden you go, oh, well, I learned a little bit more about gravity. Gravity is not just this thing that keeps me glued down to Earth like I always thought it was. Now it's this thing that I share with every other object in the universe. Believe it or not, you and I have a gravitational attraction to one another. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, but gravity is, is really formed by two things, mass and distance. So there's gravity between you and me, Eileen. There's gravity between you and me, Tiff. Like th there's, there's a force. We can't feel it because it's so light because we're not massive enough. Maybe I'm massive enough. Maybe you can feel me kind of pulling you toward me, but you know, it's, it's not something that we, we typically feel and yet it's there. And as you get further along, you, you realize uh, just in the last, I think, year, they, they started to discover and recognize that there are gravitational waves. What is that? I have no earthly idea. That's where my knowledge stops. It was something that Einstein predicted, you know, years ago in his lifetime. And they're just now starting to confirm that they're there. So, you know, if you want to get more advanced 
The sky's the limit, right? Gravity is as simple or as complex as you want it to be. And so is prayer. So is prayer. But more than it's being complex, I want you to recognize something else. I want you to recognize that prayer is vital. That it is absolutely 100% essential to the life of any person wanting or desiring to know or be known by God. It's like water. It is absolutely like water. When I played uh, football in high school, thankfully I played in a generation where they gave us a lot of water breaks because as I talked to people who played football in the generations before me, maybe in the 70s or 80s, what would often happen? Any of you play football back then? What would you take? You'd take salt tablets, right? What was the purpose of a salt tablet? So you didn't have to take water breaks. Water retention was great. So there would be no water breaks, more practice time. So you pop a salt tablet, and you're good to go for the rest of practice. Now, was that a good idea? It's a terrible idea, but it's what would happen. And so as I started playing football, you know, our, our routine was we, we'd go and we'd do a drill for 10 or 15 minutes, and then the coach would say, all right, go get some water. And we'd come back after a minute or two at the water horse, and we'd do another drill for 10 or 15 minutes, and the, the coach would say, all right, go get some water. And so over the course of three hours, what would we do? We would spend 10 or 15 different trips to the water horse. And we'd go over there, we'd, we'd drink however much water we wanted to drink, we'd fill our helmets up and then dump it on our head and let the water run down or whatever. It was nice just to, to cool off and, and take a break sometimes. Did we always feel like we were thirsty or needed it? Not necessarily. Sometimes it was just nice to not be practicing, to just stand around, talk to your friends for a second, dump a gallon of water on your head and move along. And I think prayer is kind of like that. You know, we, we don't always feel like we need prayer, do we? We don't always feel like we need prayer. Would you guys agree with that? I do. Some, yeah. some, sometimes we can delude ourselves into feeling like we don't, though. Yeah. People like Austin, they get it. They understand. We, we need prayer, right? But sometimes Satan is good enough to, to delude us and to trick us into thinking, yeah, like you don't really need to do that. And yet we learn, as Austin has, as we grow in our walk, and in our faith with God, that prayer is as vital to our relationship with him as water is to our bodies. In fact, even more so. Prayer is absolutely vital to each and every one of us. And so you look at the life of Jesus, and we get this picture of a man who would travel from, from city to city, from town to town, from village to village, into the countrysides. And what would he do? He would teach people. He would heal people. He'd perform miracles. I mean, everything we read about him happened over the span of about three years. Was he a busy guy? Yeah. He was absolutely a busy guy, right? And so Luke 5 even says, hey, the, the news about him was spreading all the more. And so crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. I mean, the, the weight of the, the world was literally on his shoulders. The weight of the region. People wanted to be healed of leprosy and, and, and you know, all sorts of things that, was, that were ailing them. So what does Jesus do when everyone wants his attention and demands a little bit of time with him? The very next verse says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and what? He prayed. When hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people wanted to be healed and taught and they just talked to him, experience him, they'd heard so much about him. What did he do? He withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. It's really, really tempting to let the urgency of things in our lives interfere with the importance or the vitalness of prayer. 
You know, Martin Luther once said, guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while. I'll pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. He says, such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that thought process. You know, the, the urgency for prayer that Jesus shows sort of reinforces those famous words from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where Paul says, hey, guys, pray. But he says, I want you to do it in a very specific way. Do you remember what, what comes next? He says, pray what? Pray continually. Pray continually. How often should you drink water if you ask your doctor? Continually, right? And how often should you pray if you ask me? Or Jesus? Continually. Does that mean that we're engaged in prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week? We're never able to have hobbies or families or careers or, or anything like that. Absolutely not. It means that, that prayer needs to be a regular part of our day, every single day, basically without exception. And so you... You may or may not know the name of Augustine or Augustine. We, we mentioned him a few weeks ago in our Is God Really There series. One of the, the great early Christian thinkers. He's a man who was born in 354 AD, died in 430 AD. He lived 16, 1700 years ago. And, and the cool thing about him is, frankly, he lived just a, a few hundred years after Christ walked the earth. And so we, we get this rich insight into what, what a deep prayer life, a maturing prayer life looked like 1700 years ago. And in about 412 AD, Augustine uh, receives a letter from a woman named Proba. And my understanding of Proba is she's the widow of the richest man in the Roman Empire uh, in that day. She's the widow of the richest man in the empire that day. And she writes to Augustine and she wants to know how to pray. She says, Augustine, how do I pray? And I find this so interesting because, again, we get this insight into what's taking place 1,700 years ago in the minds of Christian thinkers. And his response to Proba breaks down kind of like this. Number one, he says, you need to account yourself desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of your lot may be. Account yourself desolate in this world. What's that mean? Well, he's addressing kind of the, the disordered nature of the human heart. Because if we're being honest and we look at our own hearts and we think about the things that are important to us, you know, we would say, okay, well, Textbook-wise, like, the most important thing is God, right? And then, like, marriage and then kids and so on and so forth. Career after that. But, but how many of us have ever seen, even in our own hearts, where things kind of get disordered a little bit? Maybe the way that we're actually spending our time and our attention is, like, maybe career comes first and then marriage. And then, you know, like, you know, 49th or something is, like, God for, for some people. You, you guys ever experienced that where yeah. we just sort of get disordered? Yeah. He says, hey, you know, sometimes, you know, our heart's loves get a little bit out of whack. And so he, he, he talks to Proba, somebody who's grown up, you know, has had a great deal of wealth and influence and power because of the nature of, of who her family was. She had three sons who were all in the Roman government. And, and he, he encourages her. He, he says, you have to be desolate in this world. And it's not an attack on her wealth. But what he's saying is that regardless of how fortunate or how unfortunate your life has been up to this point, you need to recognize something when you go before the presence of God. He says you, you need to be desolate in the presence of God. You need to recognize that without him, you are empty, you are barren, you are broken, you are nothing. You have to recognize that first. John Calvin says anyone who stands before God to pray 
must abandon all thoughts of his own glory. You have to abandon all thoughts of your own glory before you ever go to a glorious God in prayer. And he's saying before we can come to God in prayer, let's make sure we recognize that regardless of what we have, we are still just empty as believers in this broken world. That's number one. So number two, pray for a happy life. He says pray for a happy life. This may seem like a really strange thing to say, you know, 1,700 years ago. But, you know, we have to kind of read this and understand it within the context of what he said before, that when you account yourself desolate in this world, what does it mean to pray for a happy life? When we say we want a happy life, you know, in 2019, what are we often envisioning, right? Well, we're envisioning having lots of wealth and lots of health and, you know, um, influence and power and sex appeal. And what, you know, what are the things that, that people crave today? And we, we think about those things as, as, as contributing to a worldly version of a happy life. But within the context of accounting ourselves desolate before God in this world, it changes things. Is that a happy life when you account yourself desolate in the world? Let's go like this. Not at all. It changes everything. Because once the first statement is true, what qualifies as a happy life now changes dramatically. You know, once my, my comforts are not found in this world, where are they found? Help me out. They're, yeah, they're found in, in heaven, in God, right? They're absolutely found in him. They're found in the person, person of God, and the happiness that we crave transcends what is material, what's tangible, the things that we touch, and moves toward relationship. So he says, okay, account yourself desolate in the world, pray for a happy life. Third, he says, now look at the Lord's prayer. He tells Proba, hey, the answer to your question is, is simple. Once the other two things are true, now begin to look at the Lord's prayer and pay attention to all the things that are in it. Pay attention to the order in which they are prayed. He says, then you're going to be able to see and understand the, the heart posture of God. And then four, he says, even if you do those three things, the fourth is, you know, you may not even know what to pray for. Even still, you may not know what to pray for. He's saying, hey, look, you know, something bad happens in your life. You lose your job or you, you lose a spouse or you lose a kid. You know, think of, think of something tragic. How do you pray for that, that situation? Do you pray, hey, God, will, will you deliver me from this situation? Or do you pray for the strength to endure it? What's the right prayer to pray there? He says, sometimes we really don't know. So what do we do then? What's the right thing to pray for when we really don't know? And he says, when we reach those moments when our hearts are ordered toward God, or, or uh, yeah, they are ordered toward God, and we still don't know how to pray, what do we do? He says, you look to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Paul says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself does what? Do you know this word? He intercedes, absolutely. He intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I got to tell you, I had one of those, those experiences when I was in college. I may have shared this in a sermon before, but I, I, was, I was just broken one day. I was praying and I'm like, I, I literally said, God, I don't know what to pray for. And I swear to you, Romans 8 pops into my head out of nowhere. I had no idea what to do with it. I just assumed I just made up something. Didn't know what Romans 8 was at the time. I was 19, 20 years old, 20 years old. And I, I, went, I went that morning and I opened up my Bible uh, after being just urged to, to be in Scripture. I had long since forgotten those words popping into my head. And I, it was this Bible. I sat down at the kitchen table and went like this. What page do you think I opened to? Romans 8. Romans 8. And I read it. 
And it was, it was this verse right here that kind of gave me goosebumps because I, I literally had just told God like 10 minutes earlier, God, I don't know what to pray for right now. And he goes, hey, when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with wordless groans. So to recap, Augustine says, account yourself desolate in the world. Then pray for a happy life. Look at the Lord's Prayer, and when you still don't know how to pray, trust the Holy Spirit to intercede on your behalf. And so for our purposes this morning, I want to drill down a little further on what it means or what it looks like to, to go deeper in the Lord's Prayer. So I invite you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. We were here last week a little bit. I want to, I want to get here again and, and dig a little deeper than we did last week. Matthew chapter 6. You know, oftentimes when we have a question from Scripture, there are, there are answers there. But rarely does the, does the Bible just kind of go like explicitly, here's the answer. Unless you're building a tabernacle or a temple or something, then the Bible's pretty explicit. And so the, the question is, how do I pray? And it would, be, it would be common for us to have to look in a lot of different places to, to get an answer for that. And yet, you know, Matthew 6, 9 is one of those rare instances where the Bible is just black and white, clear as day. Jesus is talking to his, his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, this then is how you should pray. And it's a question that Jesus is anticipating. And so he begins uh, with a beautifully poetic yet brief 10-line prayer. And he says, this then is how you should pray. Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now the Lord's Prayer is interesting. Raise your hand if you have heard that prayer before. Yeah. Uh, it is the most prayed and recited prayer in the history of humanity. And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, guys, this then is how you should pray. And yet many people still read this and, and go, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do with that statement. Because in some Christian traditions, what do we do? Well, we, we kind of take that verbatim, right? We take it literally. So, so people will recite this thing word for word uh, regularly with the assumption being that, that these and perhaps only these are, are the the qualifying words for prayer. Some traditions will, will lean that way. Other traditions tend to view these as a framework or a skeletal system that sort of scaffolds our prayers to God. And I think this is something more along the lines, closer to how Jesus intended the Lord's Prayer to be used. And, and I'll illustrate this a little bit later on in the message today in John chapter 17. So Jesus begins the prayer with the first line. I want to remind you kind of what we mentioned briefly last week. Pay attention to the pronouns that are used in the first half of the prayer and compare those to the second half of the prayer. We go from you, 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 or your, 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 to what? Us. Our, 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 us, right? It's kind of that, that first person plural. And so the, the prayer begins like this. We're going to break it down line by line. Our Father in heaven. Say our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. It is amazing that you can say those words. It is amazing that you can say those words. Because when Jesus says those words and encourages his followers to pray these words, 
There is a great deal of significance in what he's saying because this isn't simply some formal address or introduction to prayer. We're so accustomed to hearing these words that we're kind of flippant in the way that we read them. But we need to recognize that the term father isn't a term that is extended to all of humanity throughout all of time. It's a term that extends to a particular segment of humanity. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, here's what Paul writes. He says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And he says, because you are his sons, sons and daughters, to use the gender inclusive language, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer what? A slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. <clears throat> what is Paul saying that we once were? We once were slaves, and now we are what? Yeah, we are sons and daughters. And how did we get there? Through what? Through adoption. Through adoption. I want you to realize, you realize every single time that Jesus prays in the New Testament, he calls God Father, except one time. Except one time. When he's hanging on the cross and he prepares to breathe his last breath, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does he say there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time Jesus does not pray with the term Father. You see, the relationship between God and Jesus, or the Father and Jesus, is the true father-son relationship in Scripture. It is not a term that we get to use naturally. It's a term that we get to use because of our adoption and only through the person of Jesus. How many of you end your prayers with, in Jesus' name? We kind of use those magic words, right? Like, those aren't magic words. This is reinforced in, in what's happening here when we call God Father. Why are we able, why are we praying in Jesus' name? It is only through the person of Jesus that we get to call God Father. It, we have to pray in Jesus' name. When we use the term Father, John Calvin says, you, you basically are saying in Jesus' name. It's the same thing. We can only use that term through the blood and the work that Jesus does on the cross for us. And so Calvin says, you know, what, what would break forth into such rashness or who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless he has been adopted as children of grace in Christ? In other words, he says it's a really arrogant thing for us to pray, save for the invitation we receive to pray these words from the true son. We could not just flippantly come to God into God's presence and say, Father, apart from the work that Jesus did on the cross. Do we understand that? That's an important thing for us to understand. Okay, second, he says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallow is kind of a weird word because it's not a word that we use very often in the English language. And by very often, I mean like never. Raise your hand if you've used hallow in the last year, apart from some church-related activities. Halloween, yeah. Ah, I'm wrong. No, um, no we, don't, we don't use this word very often. But to hallow something is, is pretty much to, to say... Uh, the same thing is to consecrate something or to make something holy. It's to make something set apart. And so when we hallow the name of God, we are pausing to consider the holiness 
of God or the holiness of his name, that he's not just any God. He's the God. He's not just any God. He's a holy God. And so his name is set apart from all other names and from all other gods that the world dares to mention. Hallowed be his name, the God's name. Keller says, we, we, we do not revere his name unless, we cap, unless he captivates us with wonderment for him. When was the last time the name of God captivated you with wonderment? That is what it means to hallow his name. Jesus continues, your kingdom come. You know, when, when John the Baptist begins his ministry in the wilderness, uh, the message that he's giving to the people who will listen in Matthew chapter 3 is what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, in simple terms, sorry, you started to answer me, somebody. In simple terms, it's anywhere that God is king, right? Your kingdom come is a cry for the kingship of God to return. And so when you, when you think about the opening pages of the Bible, God is, is the kind of God who walks among Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and there's this perfect fellowship. And yet Adam and Eve welcome sin into the world, and what happens? Right? We, we recognize that there's suffering and death, but it's more than just suffering and death that comes into the world because the intimacy that they enjoy with God in that moment is destroyed, and they are removed from his presence, never to enter the garden again. Again, so it would seem. And yet, as Jesus prays this prayer, it's a prayer to return to, to intimacy with God and to restore mankind into perfect communion with God. And that's kind of the, the, the big story of the entire Bible, that heaven and earth had once been united and sin had driven them apart. And so your kingdom come is a prayer for the reunification of heaven and earth, a place where God reigns as the true king in his kingdom. Martin Luther says, yearn for that future life. That is something that we're, we're talking about as Christians. We're always looking to now or to the future. We look for that future life. He goes on, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is something of a part B to your kingdom come, I think. I think both of these kind of run in parallel to one another. But when God is king, as with any king, there's a surrendering of the will. It's kind of like that, that patron-client relationship we talked about, uh, you know, several sermon series back. But it's the job of those under the king to be subjected to him. That doesn't mean it's easy always to be subjected to authority, is it? Go like this. It's not easy to always be subjected to authority. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the evil will is still alive even in the followers of Christ. That it still seeks to cut them off from fellowship with him. And that is why they must pray that the will of God may prevail more and more in their hearts every day and break down all defiance. The, the, the key statement there is the very beginning. The evil will is still alive, even in followers of Christ. It doesn't quite go away. It's in our nature to be rebellious. That's part of our sinful nature as humans. And so thy, thy will be done is a cry to overcome that nature. It's a cry to, to honor the king as king of our lives. And so Keller says, hey, you, you can think of it kind of like a young child living within the confines of rules. Like when, when my kids were young and they were toddlers and I said, hey, don't touch the stove or don't touch the, the hot iron. 
There's a good chance they didn't know why I was saying what I was saying. They didn't comprehend what hot really was because they hadn't yet experienced it. And yet, it was kind of instinctual for most kids, not all kids, as some of you may have experienced, uh, that they will try to honor and obey the words of your parents, right? And so thy will be done is, is a pleading with God that we trust the goodness of his will and his dominion in our lives. And so these first four phrases encompass sort of like the God-centric first half of the Lord's Prayer. What's the, the gist of Jesus' first words? Bonhoeffer sums it up best. He says, if you want to know how to pray, if you want to really learn how to pray, he says, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will must be the primary object of the Christian prayer. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will are the primary object of the Christian prayer. In other words, a mature prayer life is something altogether different than just coming to God every time we need an extra dose of luck or deliverance from something difficult. Keller calls that worrying in God's direction. How many of us have ever worried in God's direction in our prayer life? Right? It's something that we all kind of resonate with, right? It's more than that, though. A mature prayer life uh, starts with the name, the kingdom, and the will of God on full display. It's a, a love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of prayer. He says, then and only then, then and only then do we proceed to the latter half of the Lord's prayer. And again, as we go here, I want you to notice the language. Jesus is not going to be using words like me, my, and mine. Instead, what does he pray? He prays on behalf of community. It's a love your neighbor as yourself kind of prayer. So he says, give us today our daily bread, right? And this is a reference to the Israelites in the wilderness as they fled uh, Egypt thousands of years prior. Because back then, God speaks to Moses and he says, hey, Moses, I am going to rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are going to go out each day. They're going to gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. What was it about? It was about faithfulness. That was what God wanted to see from the Israelites. Would the people have the faith necessary to trust and believe that tomorrow's needs would be provided tomorrow? Or would they panic and collect extra just in case tomorrow's bread never comes? That was the, the tension. That was the temptation that was in front of them every day. And so give us our daily bread speaks to our daily necessities. Not our daily luxuries, our daily necessities. This is, a, a what do you, this is not a what do you want kind of prayer. This is a what do you need kind of prayer. And remember, Jesus said, God knows what you need even before you ever ask him. That's how well he knows us. And so more than just telling God what you need, this is a statement that is made through a filter of trust. That if the Israelites have to wake up each day trusting God will provide for their needs for that day, then the same kind of prayer or the same kind of trust and, and faith, the same kind of, of trust and faith should season our language. It seasons the language of Jesus' prayer. Because you, you know what we need, God. That, that's the prayer that we're saying, right? You know what we need more than even we know what we need. And so give us what we need for today and just help us to be content and to be joyous over whatever that is, Father. But I trust you. I know that you know what I need. Next, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Last week I said, you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. And you cannot truly love your neighbor without loving, help me out, God. 
that there's a, a vertical component and a horizontal component in our relationship with God. And I think that that is on full display here when we say, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. The vertical and the horizontal shows itself. And so I, I hope all of us recognize something. I hope all of us can recognize our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. That, that when we look in the mirror and when we search our hearts, because you know you better than anybody else except from God, right? When we search our hearts, we need to understand that, that we are mistake-laden people, right? When, when Paul writes, that which I want to do, I do not do, and that which I don't want to do, I do, like what a wretched man I am, how many of you go, yep, sounds exactly like me? Like that resonates with me. I get that so much. Before God, we are broken, sinful people. And because of that, we cry out to God for forgiveness. But Jesus says, that's not actually step one. He says, step one is it's written here in the language. It says, as we also have forgiven. Step one is for us to forgive those who've wronged us first. Why? Because until we can feel the depth of the pain and sorrow that comes with being wronged by someone else, someone who's close to us, and still manage to forgive, then we will never understand the fullness of the grace of God and the forgiveness that he has for us, that it is in being hurt and forgiving another that we approach the king on the throne and ask him for mercy. How many of you have ever felt the pain of, of showing mercy to someone who has hurt you? How many of you have ever felt how hard that really is? He says, when, when you recognize that pain, and that sorrow, and that turmoil, and then you go to God in prayer and you say, God, forgive me, now you understand how hard it is for him. He does it willingly. He does it easily. It was his will to crush his son for us, for you. And yet, the, the, the mercy that he has to show us is not easy mercy. It's mercy born out of love. And Jesus continues. He, he finishes. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is an interesting phrase because, you know, I've read a number of books and commentaries and I, I didn't come across a single one that, that touched on this quite the way that I, I see it and read it. But, but I'm kind of convinced of something this week that this phrase has a lot more to do with Matthew chapter 4 than it does with just about anything else. You know, Matthew 4, if you remember the text, begins with these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was how Jesus began his ministry, right? You remember this, this situation, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and Satan kind of shows up on three major occasions and says, all right, you're hungry. You know, turn these stones into bread. Or, you know, hey, do this thing and I'll, I'll you know, bow down and worship me and I'll, I'll give you everything you see here. I mean, he, he tempts Jesus over and over and over again. And so the, the final statement of Jesus' prayer, I believe, is a request that God not do with us what he'd subjected the true son to do, that it's an acknowledgement that we could never do what Jesus actually succeeded in doing, that we could never survive that kind of encounter with the evil one, if you will. We can never survive that kind of encounter with evil. You know, Jesus contended with Satan and he came out victorious, right? He crushed the head of the serpent, so to speak. 
And he did that on our behalf. And so our, our prayer is not to do what Jesus did, but quite the opposite. God, you led your son into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. But please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are not strong enough to do this without you. And so if Jesus can deliver himself, he's certainly capable of delivering us. And if Jesus can resurrect himself from the dead, well, he's certainly capable of resurrecting us. Would you agree with that, church? Amen. And lastly, depending on your, your background or what translation you're reading, you may see this, this phrase, for thine is the kingdom, glory, and power, or power and glory forever. Amen. I just want to say really quick, that's, that's a phrase that we only have in the later manuscripts in, in the text. It's not a, a phrase that's in the earlier manuscripts. And so it's a phrase that we don't believe was actually originally there. And so for that reason, I'm, I'm omitting it. I just want you to kind of know why. So the, the Lord's Prayer looks like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When Jesus wanted to help people learn how to pray, these are the words that he said. They are words that are rich and they are deep and they are full of significance that span thousands of years. They are, they are words that seek to love God and neighbor and they are in no way self-seeking words. They honor God as our father and they welcome us as adopted sons and daughters. And that is a beautiful thing, church. And yet the question remains, what do they teach me about how to pray? Do I just pray these words? And if not, what does it look like to use these words to guide our prayer? And so I want you to keep your finger here and then move over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Because as Jesus enjoys his final moments, before he's arrested, before he's tried, before he's crucified, he concludes his time with his disciples in prayer. And as we read this prayer, I want you to be on the lookout for elements of the Lord's Prayer that we just talked about. Like, how does he address God? Does he hallow God's name? Does he pray for God's kingdom and God's will? Does he honor God first? Does he pray for his own needs or does he pray on behalf of others' needs? Is he concerned with necessities or wants? Is he concerned about their being forgiven? And does he seek their protection from deliverance or <clears throat> protection and deliverance from the evil one? And so here's, here's Jesus' prayer. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. 
They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved, sorry, have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And so church, as we we read through that prayer, it, it is obvious to me that the Lord's Prayer provides structure and scaffolding to to Jesus' words here in John 17, that all throughout John 17, the Lord's Prayer is on Jesus' mind. Um, it It is the Lord's Prayer in action, I believe. It is a clinic on how to use the Lord's Prayer to mature our own prayer lives. You know, Luther once said, what a great pity that a prayer of such a master is prattled and chattered so irreverently all over the world. What's he saying? He's saying that the Lord's Prayer is not something just to be chattered. It is something, as Luther said, that that we should drink from and never get filled. It is a a rich well from from which we drink. And so, you know, I like to make my messages simple. And this one isn't that. And that's on purpose. Because prayer isn't something that can be boiled down into a few memorable words or phrases or acronyms or, or something that rhymes Prayer is deeper than that because prayer 
is nourishment to the soul. It is a, a bonding between father and child through communion with one another. It looks to the glory of God first and, the, and to the sustenance of another second before it ever exalts the wants of our own flesh. And so, you know, I may want that house or that car or that job or that girl, but real prayer says, not my will, but yours be done. And so as we get ready to close, I want to leave you with, with four encouragements as you spend time with God in prayer, both day and night. Number one, be persistent. Be persistent. Jesus tells the, the parable of the per- persistent widow. And what is his message? He says, ask and keep on asking. Cry out day and night and God will hear your prayer. Number two, be specific. When my kids are hungry, they tell me what food they want to eat. Peyton always says Panda Express, without exception, without fail. It's always Panda Express. But they tell me specifically what they want. Pray that kind of prayer to God. Be specific that he may just surprise you. Number three, be expectant. So many of us pray and then doubt anything we ask for. And James says, hey, when you ask, you must believe. You must not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, but believe that God will answer your prayers. And number four, be patient. Be patient because nobody ever said that God only has a week to give you the answer that you want. Sometimes his answers take years. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus promised you that you will get an answer. He says in John 16, Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Last thing, and then I'll stop talking finally. If and when God answers your prayers, how will you know? How will you know? Will you even remember that you asked him? And so what I want you to consider doing as you leave here today, if you don't already do this, if you're a prime member, go home, get on Amazon or go to Target or Walmart or whatever it is and get yourself a really good notebook and begin to start to write down and journal what your prayers are. Spend just a few minutes each day, write down what's on your heart. Because the only way that you'll likely ever remember that God heard and answered your prayers if you record what those prayers actually are. I say that from limited experience because I've never been the most disciplined guy in the world. So I have started and stopped numerous times. And yet I've gone back and seen old prayer journals years later and went, wow, I cannot believe God came through and I didn't even realize it or pay attention. But I see now with the benefit of hindsight. And so I'll promise you this. When you begin to write down what's on your heart, it is then that you'll truly begin to see what you learned in prayer today is true. That when you pray, God will hear and God will answer. And I pray that we do that from a mature perspective and not just worrying in God's direction.